Welcome to Donor Conception Conversations. This is the one podcast that's created exclusively for people who are pursuing donor conception or have donor-conceived children. I'm your host, Lisa Schumann. As a researcher, therapist, and an expert in donor conception, I'm passionate about helping people on their donor conception journey. After decades of work in the field, working on site at some of the best fertility clinics, and through my group, the Center for Family Building, I have run workshops for donor-conceived children and have met with thousands of donors and recipients. I can share the tools and the truths I have learned to help you get the information that you need to have a better path to parenthood or help you tackle tough parenting issues. If it's about donor conception, we are going to talk about it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Today, I am welcoming Art and Eric. They're old friends of mine and people that I once worked with, and they have a wonderful story. They are on their second journey, and I thought they could share some of the things that they've learned to help you understand how to consider choosing a donor, some thoughts about what complexities there are in the process, and ultimately how it all ends up to be a beautiful story. So welcome, Eric and Art. Eric is currently transitioning from being a Florida and California litigation attorney to a full-time dad. It's very exciting. Art's Chief Growth Officer for Reunity, America's leading home improvement services provider. Prior to joining Reunity, he worked with clients across the globe with special focuses on private equity, multi-unit retail, and tech-enabled consumer services. Outside of their day-to-day work, Art and Eric work together in many projects and ventures to create something special that their children could be parts of. So welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having us. Excited to be here, Lisa. Well, thanks so much. I really, it's really wonderful to see you. And um, I thought maybe we could start with the beginning of your journey. How did you first think about how am I going to choose a donor? Is this the right time to pursue donor conception? And what do I really want in, in the genetics for my future child? Do we still remember? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, um, I remember the first conversation we had, uh, we had just uh, moved in together in Charlotte. And from the very beginning of our relationship, we both knew that we wanted children. And we had just seemed to hit this part of our relationship that made sense that we knew it was going to be a long journey. So it just made sense to start thinking about how does that journey even start? And that was 2017. Um, And then our first child was born in 2022. So that's how long it took us. We also had COVID in the middle, so it wasn't (laughs) the best timing for for that to happen. I mean, from there, we just, I I mean, I'm a lawyer, right? So I started just reaching out to attorneys to get Mm -hmm. kind of like a framework of, from the legal perspective of how a surrogacy would work. And also where to get started, because we had no clue. Yes. (laughs) And that's kind of where I was explained, well, you're going to need an egg donor to um, donate an egg. And you're also going to need a separate gestational carrier because of the legal implications of the, of traditional surrogacy, right? That we Mm -hmm. didn't want the egg donor to also be the the carrier. So 
that's when it started. Yeah. I think for us after that, our first step was finding uh, an IVF doctor. Mm-hmm. And so even prior to, to finding the egg donor, that's the first step we took. And so we met with, I don't know, four or five different IVF doctors. And well, we, we really wanted to have someone work with a clinic that was already working with donors and was already working with gestational carriers because we didn't we wanted the experience there, right? Yeah. With not only the what to look for medically, but also the emotional aspect. They know more of what um, to expect from the clients, right? That helps yeah. narrow down the list of IVF clinics we would ultimately meet with to that five. Yeah, and I guess it was a, a learning experience too because we didn't know. We, we learned about how there were doctors that have clinics that specialize both in, in helping couples with IVF, but also uh, doing surrogacy. And there's others that do not do surrogacy. So, so that was something that we found out. And, and we ended up deciding that we wanted to work with a, a clinic that, that had experience with surrogacy as well. So that was part of our, our process. And, and then once we went through that uh, is when, when we really started uh, thinking about, okay, now we need to find an egg donor. Like, where do we start? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I will say, you know, something that you mentioned to me before, which I think is really important for our audience to know, you know, I meet so many couples, right, who are gay and say, you know, I really want to find a, you know, LGBTQ friendly uh, clinic, not just a clinic that's going to put, you know, post a, a little sticker on their door with a rainbow flag. That's like not enough. Right. Yeah. And so, yes, that's super duper important. However, it's also important to make sure that you're going to get pregnant, right? That's why you're here. You want to make sure you get a baby and a healthy baby. So it's also important to do your research to make sure that your fertility clinic is a fertility clinic that has good success rates. And that is something that you guys were also very clever about early on. And I think a lot of people don't really know that, that there is an organization called SART, S-A-R-T, for those people who don't know. And you guys did some great research and independently discovered that you could see your doctor's success rate right there on the statistics. And it's on the CDC website, but also on the website for the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. And so you were able to see and compare uh, clinic rates. And so you can kind of narrow down to, you know, queer-friendly clinics, but also narrow it by clinics that have a good lab that are going to be able to give you a healthy baby, right? Which is really insightful for you guys to do so early on. Yeah, yeah. That, that really did. I mean, we, we didn't know going into this that all these statistics have to be reported, right? Or are not... Start, I, I, yeah, that, that they're available to us, right? So I didn't know that there was actually a place where we could find these results and going into it. So I, I forget who referred us to it in the process when we were meeting with doctors and, and uh, counselors uh, like you, Lisa. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really what ended up tipping the scales to the clinic where we went, right? Because it was those we were kind of between two and then we found out about SART, went to SART and we're like, okay, now we know exactly what to do. Also at that stage, we learned a lot about, I guess, what we had to start thinking about in terms of our egg donor. We also did um, genetic testing on ourselves to to learn about whether there should be uh, some considerations there and, and really just educating ourselves in the process. And, and the clinic we worked with really walked us 
through it and, and held their hand through the whole egg donor selection process as well. So, so it was really helpful to have the clinic selected first in our case because we felt we had a, a team really working with us to, to, to help us navigate through that. It's particularly from the medical from stuff, the medical which aspect. is we didn't know, we don't know any of that. So we mm-hmm. were able to use them and rely on their expertise. expertise for those and then leave the rest to us, right? Like backgrounds and things like that. And how did you decide, I want to use an, a donor from the clinic donor pool, or I want to go to an agency, or I want to use a couple of cycles from the egg bank. How did you kind of decide that? So then it was really confusing at first, we'll be honest, because we, we didn't fully understand how it works. We started reaching to some of the egg donor agencies and, and we wanted to have, I guess we wanted to do a broad search and we didn't want to limit ourselves to a single agency. So, so that was really difficult for us at first because is, do we really want to sign up with an agency and then limit ourselves to have to pick a donor from their pool? Mm-hmm. And is there a way for us to do it differently? So we spent a lot of time really researching that. And then we, we found out about an agency that has a little bit of a different model where they help you um, source egg donors from multiple agencies, not just one. Mm-hmm. And so that's what we ended up doing. And we, we work with them and, and, and they work with us really to help us think through what we wanted. Cause at, at that point we also weren't sure. And so they, they really asked us a lot of questions and got us to start thinking about what was important to us and, 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 and how to think through that process. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we just sort of took uh, our clinics recommendations in terms of EMH levels and things because our clinic said, well, what's your interest? Do you want to share the cycle? Okay. So we wanted to share the cycle, right? So their recommendation was we need someone with a higher AMH so that there's more of a safety net in terms of the um, eggs that we can do with the cycle. Right. So that was important to us. So, I mean, I would have never known that that was just passed directly from the clinic to the the people helping us over at... Uh, and that's a good example of why it was good in our case to have the, the IVF clinic and selected first as part of this journey. Yeah. yeah, And that's so and important then, to think about that, right? Because if you're a straight couple, then you only have one genetics that you have to worry about, one person's egg, one person's sperm. And so you don't really think about it in the same way. But if you're going to split the eggs in half and both fertilize... Um, eggs with your sperm, then we need to make sure that we have a lot to work with, right? Yeah, because otherwise we would have had to do another IVF cycle, mm-hmm. which would have been another, you know, huge expense. Right. So that was the clinic's recommendation. If you want to try to just do one cycle, we recommend that route. So with that in hand, the clinic uh, or the the agency we were working with to find the egg donor asked us more questions in terms of, of, of like appearance, right? For us, it was just important that they fall somewhere between us two. So the agency was easily able to take that instruction and, and you know, and that was a wide range of people, right? So mm-hmm. we didn't want to limit in terms of light eyes and blonde hair, right? We just said someone who looks like us, right? You know, so with that, I think apart from that instruction, it was more like 
a similar family medical history. So we never had someone with um, dyslexia, for example. And at some point there was an egg donor presented with dyslexia. So we spoke to the geneticist at the clinic about, you know, what that meant and ultimately decided, well, since that's in neither of our family medical histories, let's, let's keep searching. Right. Mm -hmm. Was there anything else? No, I guess we were also lucky on the medical side. We, and it's important to do the genetic testing and see if there are certain um, things that that you're a carrier of. And, Mm -hmm. and and if you want to, used that as a, to, to select the, the donor too. There were not a lot of limitations in our end. And so that was not. No, and, because yeah. the, the, the egg donor agencies will also have the egg donors do the same genetic testing just to make sure, of course, that you're not both carriers of the same traits. And I don't think we ever had to rule someone out because it wouldn't have been a, a good match in terms of that, but it was more the introduction of things into our, I guess, our family that we wouldn't have had ever dealt with, like dyslexia, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. After that, it was really, we, we waited for a few weeks, mm-hmm. was it? And until the, the agency we were working with starting presenting options to us. And that was a little intimidating at first, I would say. Yes. Because <laughs> it, it is, I mean, it, it's been quite honest, it felt like, Going on a dating app yeah. and like looking up files. Yes, because um, <laughs> so, well, really detailed dating app because you get like medical med- history and, and family things. history and everything. Yeah. yeah, I guess we we did it in different ways. Like there were times when Eric would look at it first, and I would look at it separately, and then we would compare. And there were times where we did it together. Also, we realized how like you really need to act quick when you find an egg donor that you think could be a match. Yes, because um, there were some cases where we. And we took too long to decide and the egg donor either decided she didn't want to do it anymore or did it with somebody else mm-hmm. and things like that. So, so we twice. Happened twice, yeah. Wow. Um, like within so, days. Like I think we took like three days for the first one. And then the second time it was two two and a half days or something. And yeah. yeah. But we also learned at that time about the importance of the clinic's desire to see if they were uh, a repeat donor to see that it was a donor to a a couple and not to a bank because with the donor to the couple, there was more information like live birth results and and whether a baby was born or not from those eggs. And they were telling us at the clinic, you know, it's much more difficult when they're donating to a bank because we have no idea where those eggs end up and whether they end up with a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. Which was one, not the only one, but one of the reasons why we decided to go with the uh, donation instead of the bank. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we also didn't work with one of, I think, the potential matches because her fee was really high and there was just too little from the medical piece for the doctor to really give like the stamp of approval. Mm-hmm. You know, whether he thought he was, uh, this was a good fit for us to proceed down the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So we, without, we really just leaned on the doctor mostly in terms of that stuff. If someone, if someone matched like all of our wishes in terms of all the other pieces, but then medically the doctor was on the fence, we just kept going. Yeah. Good idea. So we can take that risk. That's another good idea. Absolutely. Because 
you know, we don't know, right, if your child is going to look like the donor or her grandfather or, you know, mm-hmm. your grandmother, right? We don't, we don't, we have no idea. And so in the end, the one thing we do have some control over is health history. And even though the donor's history will change over time because she's young, you do have background, a lot of background information about her family. And so that's really great that you guys were able to kind of think about it in that way. And, and what did you guys do about um, contact? Did you decide that you'd like a donor that you can contact or know, or how did you make that decision? That's a good question. Cause I think initially we were, open to having contact and um, but we ultimately wanted the the donor to make that decision we we weren't gonna say no if they were opposed to it um, and in our case the donor we ended up working with and uh, wasn't sure she wanted to do it uh, but she agreed to maintain her contact information with the agency so that when our kids are uh, adults if they want to contact her she'll be available and, and would be open to to she was hearing from them. Yeah. Uh, for me, it was really important. So I had read this book already that you had recommended, the, the Mommies, mm-hmm. Daddies, and Surrogates. Mm-hmm. And at the time that we were negotiating the contract, she said to us, you know, via the attorneys, this is not my kid. I want to help your family. I want it to be more anonymous, you know, as anonymous as it can be in this day and age. So I asked, you know, because my child may in the future want to just know who you are. Do you mind just maintaining your contact information and we can put that in there and in the contract and that way they'll just have your contact information. You don't have to answer the phone, but they'll have something to reach out to. And that was at least something that I could do at that time, thinking about my kid, you know, in the future wanting to have this connection. That's great. And yeah. yeah. And so important. So, and right. Because we did try to do the donor sibling registry, but she wasn't quite sure. So that's where we ended up with just that, that yeah. she would maintain her contact information. That's great. Well, you can still do the donor sibling registry at some point. Um, and it's great that you were able to um, work that out with her because so many of the people I see are kind of on the fence about it. And then they go through the whole cycle and they have their baby and they look at their child and they think, Oh my gosh, I wish I had the donor's contact information because I really want this for my child. And then it's kind of too late. The cycle's over the clinic, you know, very often won't go back and try to reach out to the donor after that. So again, I think you guys, you know, your homework really paid off. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's like, we're both really heavy researchers. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and really, we just wanted to to give our our children the choice. Yes, because um, they my my kid may be like, I don't want to contact. Why would I want to contact you? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. You don't know, right? How they're going to feel. But it's great that you're able to kind of give them that option, and um, and to, and do you now, you know, with your the child that you have now, do you ever talk about your donor or read stories about donor conception or? Yes. Like sometimes we'll say a little prayer for the surrogate and, and the the egg donor Sweet. and thanking them for, um, and that was actually advice that we got from our surrogate's OB's wife actually had like a similar situation, but uh, with adoption and they would thank the adopted parents and, and they would pray for them and thanking the, birth- the adoptive parents for bringing 
So that's where we kind of got that idea. I also wrote a children's story. Um, You and I spoke about this a lot um, in our support groups Mm -hmm. that we would meet um, with all, with the other couples that were in our, you know, going through the same process. And we both have conservative uh, families and friends and a lot of the children's books that I was, and I bought hundreds of, I mean, I feel like I bought every single book on the topic. They talk about eggs and sperm and, and things that I wasn't really going to be comfortable saying to like my kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know for sure my conservative family and arts, like they would not be comfortable reading it. So I kind of started just putting something together to explain to our kid that it's just it explains the embryo as a tiny heart um, and two pieces that come together. Um, And, you know, inside each body, there's different shapes, sides of the heart, but inside of our bodies, there's only right parts. Hmm. So a doctor told us someone will give us uh, the left part and, you know, and it grows inside another person's tummy. And, you know, it, it really is, I felt like a way to present the material in such an easy way to digest that eventually he'll get into that age where science is like real and, Mm -hmm. you know, learning it in school and he'll connect the dots and be like, Oh, okay. The right piece of the heart is a sperm. And then the left piece is an egg and they come together to make an Mm -hmm. embryo. And we, I made little stuffed animals right now. It's just a game. I'm sure for him. That's sweet. The reason we do it now, and this is, across the board, the recommendation that we received was just to be so comfortable with their origin story that once they are able to ask questions and fully understand what we're saying, or maybe not fully understand, but just understand more. Yeah. Yeah. It's, there's no hesitation and there's no, it's just a natural flow of conversation with them because from what we were explained that these little nuanced pauses and things for kids could kind of throw them off. So as long as we are all prepared as a family to answer these questions of where they came from, it's just going to be like the best thing for this, for our kids, right? Let's talk more about your book, Eric, because I want everybody to to hear it. So, you know, you've decided to deal with a really tough issue for a lot of people, which is, you know, how am I going to explain this to my family? And in a way that's going to be able to be digestible. And at the same time, you really made it very nice because you were talking about it in metaphor, right? It's like a beautiful way to talk about the creation of your baby in metaphor, which is, you know, is just as good as talking about it technically, but you're able to say it in a different way, which I think is really lovely. Our journey was a long journey, right? From 2017, the very first phone call to 2022. So I had a lot of time to think about it. And when I sat down to write it the first time, I'm an attorney. I am like a serious writer, not a playful, <laughs> creative writer. Art reads it. And he's like, what? Who, what kid are you reading this story? It read like a contract. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Um, and I really just started, okay, I threw that out the window and I thought about like my favorite books as a kid and they all rhymed. So I'm like, all right, this story has to rhyme. And I thought, okay, all my favorite stories as a kid had animals. So I made it the family dog telling the story to the, our pet fish who can't leave the house. 
So he doesn't know like the outside world. He just knows what he's told like by the pet dog who goes on these adventures with their dads, right? So we come home with the baby and the fish is like, wait a minute. I only know the story about how mommies and daddies help babies. How did our two daddies have a baby? And then it's like the dog telling the whole story. Nice. Fantastic. Oh, that sounds great. Well, I can't wait to see it. Here, let me When does it come out? I'm, I'm sending it. That's okay. I'm very excited to see it. That's great. So this is the sneak peek we're going to be sending. This is the artist. She's nice. writing it all. Beautiful. And we made these for him. So this is the dog. And then this is the fish. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. So I'm that's trying to great. figure out a way to make the heart. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's not as easy as these. Um, and then trying to finish and get, I wanted the goal is to try to get it out there by pride. Well, that'll be a nice, nice thing to, uh, talk about during pride. So you'll have to, to send me one so we can talk, we can talk about it on the podcast during pride. That's a great, that's great. So tell me how you guys kind of got through this. You mentioned, um, you know, the support group. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like it was a support group or counseling or what was it that was most helpful to you kind of in getting through all of the hurdles because you guys had some bumps along the way? It was really just hearing from other people that were going through similar experiences. We didn't have anybody, at least not anybody close in our family or a circle of friends that had done this before. Although all of them like try to empathize and understand, and unless you've really gone through it, it, it's hard to understand what the what the experience is like. So, so having those support groups were extremely helpful. I guess in our in our case, it was the wait, and like Eric said, it took us a long time um, mm-hmm. to to get there. So hearing from others how they were handling, getting advice when when things were not mm-hmm. um, going right. And when COVID started, there was a lot of uncertainty of what does it mean? And we had just um, frozen, frozen our, our embryos when, when COVID started. And, and we didn't know what, we, what that meant in terms of next steps, in terms of surrogacy and all of that. So having yeah. access to the support group at, at that stage was extremely helpful. Yeah. We were at the stage where normally before COVID, you would freeze the embryos, get the, we got the genetic test results, and then you just jump into your surrogate search. <laughs> But mm-hmm. COVID happened, the lab shut down, and we're like, all right, well, do we pee? Yeah. What do we do? And this was or March 2020, and it was until at the end of 2021. Yeah. So over a year because of COVID. It was really just. Yeah. COVID. But for us, I like I was saying, the support groups, and not just hearing the stories of other couples, because it was both gay and straight, right? People looking for sperm donors and people looking for, you know, help from surrogates or just finding a clinic. There was Mm -hmm. so many different people at so many different stages that we were hearing about. And it was nice to be able to support people and help them through things that we had already been through and sort of lean on the other people in the group when we needed their advice. But also having people like you and Lisa Rosenthal was also very helpful in one of the support groups that you uh, teamed up with her to do. And I don't think for me personally, it would have been the same experience without that. It would have been a lot tougher. So my advice to anyone going through this would be find there's support groups out there online, find one, join. A lot of them are free. 
but just build a community that you can go to who will understand yeah. what you're going through. And I guess the only the other thing that I would add to the support group uh, topic is Eric was able to join a lot more of those groups than I was because of work. Uh, mm -hmm. And I would say to people thinking about joining or couples, you don't have to do it together. So if you can, great. And, but if not, you can join independently. There, there's a lot of, of, of people that join that way. So, so. Yeah, because there were many times that you would come home and I would be like, oh, in the support group, there's someone who just went through something like us. So now it's like, okay, we're not the only ones, you know, like it's okay. It's not, you know, as yeah. bad as we thought, you know. And art, I felt like a, a lot of times you were able to come home and kind of feel the relief of that I felt after being part of these groups. Yeah, it does make a difference if one person, the couple, feels less stressed. It does affect the whole the whole system, the couple. Yeah. You talked about having some conservative family members. How was it for you guys? I mean, it's one thing to come out, then it's another thing to have a relationship, then it's another thing to get married. But then when you bring a baby into the picture, it can be yet another thing, right? It's like you're kind of coming out all over again. Mm -hmm. And so how did you navigate that? Did you have people who were supportive or how were your friends and family when you decided we're going to have a baby? I think overall, most people were very supportive. And and, and I guess I, I've never thought about it this way, but I, I do think that for us coming out and then getting married and doing all those things that we and we had gone through those experiences that are similar in one way or another, where you don't know how people are going to react to it. I don't think a lot of our friends and family were that surprised, to be honest, because we, we've uh, we've known we wanted to have kids and from the very beginning, and, and we've always shared that. So when when we told them it was happening, and and, and they were most of them were just happy for us. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean they didn't have questions, and and they, will. And they were they will and. And it's uh, curious as to, as to how it works, what it means. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because yeah, a lot of them get in this day and age, people are afraid to say the wrong thing. And a lot of our conservative friends and family are just so afraid to sometimes now ask questions because they're afraid to like say the wrong term or whatever. So I always tell them, listen, like, I love you. And this is you, if you make a mistake in what the way you say something, it's fine. Like, it's not the end of the world. I won't hold it against ask, you. Exactly. Just mm -hmm. ask the question so that you can know, right? And then we can figure it out. But that has helped a lot of people kind of let their guard down and just really ask, you know, openly about the egg donor and the surrogate. And they know that we'll answer whatever we're comfortable answering. Because if mm -hmm. not, we'll say, well, that's for Artie to know or our son to know. If he wants to share that in the future, then he can share that with you. Right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. A was, lot of the first question people always want to know is like, who's the the, the genetic parent, right? Yes. Yeah. And a misconception out there is uh, they always, uh, they ask us, they still do, do you mix the experiment? Oh, yeah. That's something that people just <laughs> do don't know. And, and it's uh, the first thing they think about. Do you mix the sperm? Oh, we're like okay, well, yeah. Uh, Let's science, go back to biology class. Yeah, <laughs> yeah right. <laughs> but, um, but I guess people people are also, I guess, wondering maybe if they they're not thinking that you can use two sperm. Maybe they're also wondering if you didn't want to know. Yes, right? if you just kind of well, no. Yeah. People ask if we. I guess not mixed. They ask if we've combined our sperm to create this mm -hmm. child, and we're like that. I don't think that's possible yet. Um, mm -hmm. Unfortunately. <laughs> 
Um, no. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, but going back to your question, I think mm-hmm. most, we were lucky in that most of our friends and family, they were curious more than anything else. And because many of them had never met anybody that, that had had uh, family that, yeah. the way that we did. Mm-hmm. And so they just wanted to learn how things work. And, and, and I think we, we try to be as open as we could in answering their questions. And, and sometimes even prompting the questions for them because we knew they wanted to know and they might be afraid to say the wrong thing like Eric was saying. So a lot of times we initiated the conversation just to make sure that, that they had all the information we knew they were curious about. Like a lot of people want to ask that question about who the genetic parent is, right? Yeah. So when I sense it, I'm like, oh, I still can't tell. Like, does he look more like me or are we don't know because we didn't want to find out. Right. So it's that's kind of like the way to with our close knit people who like extended like our, you know, great aunts and people who are older and maybe not fully up to date, <laughs> right? They, they mm-hmm. just, you know, they mm-hmm. want to ask, but they don't know how and whatever. Right. So we just kind of lay it out there in a way that's easy for them to, ah, okay, you know, you don't know. Well, and then it's easy for them to now look at the baby and be like, oh, you know what? No, I see your eyes or I see his ears. And it's kind of like makes it, I don't know if it makes it more our child in their view because they're now trying to figure out like, who does he look more like? Which is mm-hmm. the thing they do in a regular relationship or a straight couple baby, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, well, I think that's a you know that's an interesting way around it because it is a tough one, and I think people sometimes people are you know can be intrusive, but they don't mean to be, right? It's just something that they think about very often, and it just kind of rolls off their tongue, and they're thinking, you know, I really wonder about this because it's unusual for them. And I think in our, in our case, I mean, there's no right or wrong way to do it but we 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 decided not to know who the the genetic um, parent was simply because we wanted to leave some things to to chance so we told the doctor to pick the the embryo with the the highest rating or score i forget what they they call it mm-hmm. and and to not tell us who the biological um, parent was or what gender it was either we mm-hmm. we didn't want to make that choice uh, mm-hmm. so we only so have like one AE or whatever the yeah. thing was. And so it worked out. <laughs> mm-hmm. And then for the second baby who's on the way, we said, okay, same thing, but just from the other parent. And they were able to help us with that. Without telling him, without saying who they are. Yeah. So it's, it's something that we okay. wanted to leave to our kids to ask and we mm-hmm. will find out with you. Nice. Nice. Very nice. I think that's beautiful. And I do think that, you know, and I've said many times that people do get stuck in these situations and then people are then always going to look at the baby like this is Art's baby or this is Eric's baby or, you know, this child argues. And so it's got to be, you know, Eric's baby because he's a litigator or, you know, whatever they, they think. Um, in their mind, and they sometimes even teachers or other people in the child's life are also going to kind of think about the baby just that way. And I think sometimes it leaves the other parent out of the story, right? It leaves the other parent feeling kind of left out because it minimizes their role as a parent. So I think that's really nice that you guys don't, um, that you don't know and that you're going to find out with your child. I think that's a, that's a beautiful thing. That's great. What do you feel now um, that looking back, you would have done differently or have you done differently in your second journey? 
it's hard for people in our position to not get excited with, you know, this process moving forward. But I wish that there were times where we were a little more cautious in terms of who we were trusting in terms of the business side, because there are some, you know, people in this who are really just trying to make money off of emotions. So just be careful and, you know, read things through and make sure, you know, you get a good sense of and trust your gut, right? (laughs) If you feel like you're working with the right people, you know, it'll feel right from the very beginning. So you feel that when you look back at it, the people that you feel like you weren't feeling great about turned out to be the people that you that weren't so great for you. Yeah. And it was really that we would get this feeling and then almost like convince ourselves using another reason like, oh, well, the you know, for this reason, maybe that feeling should be like not uh, as important. Yeah. And I guess not necessarily things that we would do differently, but like things that we learned along the way is one. And just because you're doing IVF or you're doing surrogacy, you really have no control over the timeline. So, so things will happen when they're meant to happen. It's tough at first to, to accept it, especially when things are not going the way you would like them to. And mm-hmm. so that's one. And that's in our case, the opportunity to, to, to get pregnant again and start our second journey happened sooner than we anticipated it. But when it did, and we said, if, if the opportunity is there, we need to do it because it means that, that, that our time is now. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the learnings, I guess, we had from the first uh, journey to the second one. And the other one, which I guess we also learned throughout the, the first one, we when we were going through the egg donor selection process, we thought that was going to be the toughest part or the most difficult choice because we were choosing the genetics uh, for our children. And, and it was it was honestly not not easy to go through it at mm-hmm. first. But in our case that we, we, we went through surrogacy, that in itself, it's also uh, a very important decision and, and a, a lifelong uh, link that you're going to have with the person that, that, that helps you bring your children to the world. So, so it is um, equally important to take the time and make sure that you have the, the right support team to help you make those decisions as well. Great advice. And um, I'm sure that everyone who's listening to this will really appreciate all this this wisdom and advice um, that you've given today. So I really appreciate your time and your effort in speaking with me today. It's always, of course, nice to see your faces, but I, I appreciate it even more because we're you know sharing good information in the world and that's what this is for. So it's great. Thank you so much. Is there any place where people might be able to reach out to you or if they have questions, do you have like an Instagram page or um, social media page that you like to... Yes. I mean, my Instagram is Mr. Eric Vincent and I'm happy to answer any questions. If anyone wants to message me about anything about their, their journey, I'd love to help. That's great. Well, thank you so much. That's very generous of you. And I, again, I really appreciate having you on. 
So thanks so much. And um, for all of you out there, please subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes and come to our website, familybuilding.net, because you'll get lots of information there. I have lots of books um, like the ones that uh, Eric mentioned and also lots of other resources. So please feel free to check us out and sign up for our newsletter because that way you'll always stay in touch with us. So thanks so much for coming and I'll see you next time.